From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home and your head. And thank you for your ears, as always. I hope, wherever you are, that you are safe, warm, dry, and well-fed. We've just passed through the Easter season and Passover. And I think it's proper and right to ask, at this time of year, about something that is central to the Christian faith. The belief that Jesus Christ, Yeshua, actually rose from the dead, in the flesh was resurrected on the third day after his crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. But is it just an article of faith? Or is there actual evidence for this resurrection event? In his book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Dr. Gary Habermas writes, If the bones of Jesus were found tomorrow, would you walk away from Christianity? You should. Why? Because faith in a dead Jesus is worthless. Even the Apostle Paul says so in 1 Corinthians. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Did you catch that? The bones of Jesus would make our faith useless. Come on, Paul, isn't that kind of harsh? No, and here's why. Imagine a group of people who have dedicated their lives to Peter Pan. They construct a beautiful building to gather in celebration of Pan's life. They sing songs to him and tell stories about his wonderful deeds. What would you think about such a group? What a waste of life. Peter Pan is a fairy tale. We should feel sorry for such people. Well, if Jesus did not rise bodily from the grave, then Christianity is a fairy tale, just like Peter Pan's. It's make-believe, and Christians are wasting their lives. And what should people think about us? Paul concludes that if Christ hasn't been raised... We are to be pitied more than all men. Well, we have the Gospel accounts in the New Testament, we have the prophecies in the Old Testament, but what about documentation outside the Bible? What is the evidence for the resurrection? Here to provide some of that evidence for the resurrection is Carl Gallops, a longtime senior pastor, a former law enforcement officer, a broadcaster, and the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and The Magic Man in the Sky. Hey, Carl, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Well, um, I want to talk about, uh, of course, here we are now, uh, Easter, and uh, I want to talk about the evidence, uh, not not the faith so much. Obviously, you know, uh, we believe that um, you know the Christ rose from the dead in accordance uh, with the Scripture, uh, and that's central, obviously, to the Christian Christian faith and theology. This belief in the resurrection of Jesus, that he returned to life on the Sunday following the Friday when he was executed by crucifixion. But obviously there are many people out there who are saying, well, well, where is the evidence? Show me the evidence. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about the historical evidence, if we can call it that, both inside the Bible and outside the Bible. Let's start, let's start with the Bible. Uh, and, and, um, I thought Luke would be a great, a great, um, gospel to talk about because Luke talks about, about the, the crucifixion and the, uh, the, um, the resurrection sort of gives us an, almost an hour by hour chronological, um, approach. Whereas the other gospels sort of jump around a little bit, topic by topic. Can we do that? Talk about Luke? 
Oh, yeah. We can talk about anything you want on this topic. I, I love this topic. As a matter of fact, this is a three-hour show, right? <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah, if only. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, where do you want to begin, Richard? Well, let's talk about about uh, the Gospel of Luke and okay. and um, what 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 that tells us about the, the about the resurrection. Right. Well, the Gospel of Luke, of course, is one of the four Gospels the the, the account uh, the account of the the life uh, the the ministry, the miracles, the teaching, the preaching, the crucifixion, and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke is is particularly interesting, as you said, because Luke was a a, a medical doctor and an historian. Uh, we know that he was a medical doctor from some writings of the Apostle Paul. We know, of course, he was a, a uh, detailed historian because Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And, and a lot of people don't know that. Most Christians know that, but a lot of folks don't know that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And really, if you look at Luke and Acts, it's one unfolding story. Um, they're, they're meant to go together. And uh, Luke does include extremely intricate historical details in all of his narratives. That's why the Luke chapter 2, uh, and well, chapter 1 and chapter 2 particularly, uh, are so um, loved and beloved around Christmas time, because there's so much detail there about the birth of Christ and, 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 and how all of that happened and all of the details. Uh, names of emperors and 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 taxes and and uh, governors and you know and, and and the wise men and the shepherds and the in the and the announcements of the angel and Simeon in the in the temple and so and so again by the time we get to the crucifixion and then the resurrection a lot of details there as well a lot of details about Passover week upon which uh, you know uh, where wherein Jesus was crucified so uh, the Gospel of Luke is very, very um, uh, intricate and is extremely important to the unfolding of the, uh, of the resurrection message in particular. That's what we're talking about tonight. And, and, and when you take what Luke says and all the details that he provides and add that to uh, the other accounts, uh, some of them eyewitnesses, Matthew certainly would have been an eyewitness to all of that, uh, uh, John would have been an eyewitness to all of that, being disciples. And then you take Luke and his historical investigation. That's how he begins Luke and Acts, by saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically by saying, look, I investigated this with all the information that I could get, including eyewitness accounts, and here's a detailed accounting of what took place. So Luke speaks as an authority. And, uh, of course, you and I are believers that the New Testament documents are, are the Word of God, so we, we don't have a problem with that authority. But, I mean, just separating Luke out, he certainly speaks as an authoritative, authoritative um, uh, uh, historical source. So, well, as so you say, yeah, he, was, he was an historian, and, and people will often counter, well, you, you can't go into the Bible uh, and, and look at it as history. Uh, and use that as supporting evidence, but it well, was written as a history, yeah, right? Yes, yeah, so, yes, you certainly can. I mean, you, you know, again, a, a Christian, we look at it through the eyes of faith. We look at it through the uh, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But but this is the Word of God. I mean, archaeology has never disproven a single fact of the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, archaeology, archaeological discoveries, over and over, uh, have proven uh, the Bible to be accurate.
accurate and to be true. Um, there's not a single archaeological discovery that disproves any historical statement within the scriptures. As a matter of fact, as I said, archaeology over the years has actually proven uh, things that people had used to discredit the Bible, and, and then, lo and behold, here comes an archaeological uh, uh, dig and revelation that says, oh, well, we can't use that to discredit the Bible. So yes, certainly you can approach the scriptures from an historical point of view. You certainly can, and, and they're very reliable. As a matter of fact, the whole science of archaeology was orig originally initiated for the purpose of discovering treasures, ancient treasures. And, of course, it has, you know, since uh, morphed and evolved into something much greater than that and a little more scientific. But one of the books that was used predominantly in looking for these treasures was the Bible uh, because they, you know, looked at it as, an, as a reliable historical source. And as the years have gone by, archaeology has proven that the Bible is extremely reliable historically. So, so yes, we can certainly look at it with historical eyes. You know, I'm a preacher of the Word, Richard. As you know, I've been a pastor for 28 years in one church and been preaching the, the gospel all over the world and in many different formats, in books and movies and videos and radio and TV. And, uh, and, and, and I never preach a message without first putting it in the text that I'm using in its historical context, and I always deal with the history of the of of, of the text in which I'm uh, preaching, so that people will understand the time and the place and and the message that it had then, as well as the message it has now. So so yes, uh, the historical context is extremely important. Uh, I find uh, this was an argument I read some time ago about. You know, people who say, well, it was simply a fabrication, it was a myth, they made mm. it up. But mm. if you go back to this, this time that Luke was writing, or, or uh, Jesus' contemporaries, the apostles, when they were writing, you think about how few people were illiterate, how, how, how few people could read, much less write, and how expensive paper or parchment, which was leather, it was, you know, to write. There was... There was an there was no incentive to fabricate. I mean, right. today paper's cheap. You have the National Enquirer. Yeah. Uh, you could write anything. It's so disposal disposable. The National Enquirer could not not have been published at this time. There was such a a high regard given to writing, and and the luxury to create fiction just right. didn't exist then. Well, no, you you have spoken very accurately, Richard, and not only that, and, and and I was teasing you. I wish that's why we had three hours because, oh my gosh, you you've you've really opened up a passion of mine. There's so much that I could say about this. Let me just kind of give a, a brief response to that uh, by saying that, well, everything you just said, I say amen to. Plus, I'll add this. Look, just look at it through common common sense and what we know from historical documents. First of all, let's just begin with the Bible. Like you said, we're going to begin with there, but let's go outside the Bible as well. But let's begin with the Bible. 27 New Testament documents. Those are the most, without a doubt, scrutinized documents in the entirety of ancient document history. Those documents have been scrutinized for 2,000 years, not only by people who uh, adore the documents, but by people who hate those documents and what they represent and the message that they bring forth. So these documents have been heavily scrutinized, the message of them, the history of them, the archaeology of them. For 2,000 years, people have been trying with all the technology and the advanced uh, uh, historical knowledge we have to disprove 
those documents, not only the documents but the message of them, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because here's why that's important, Richard. Listen, there were a lot of religious people that were crucified on crosses. There were a lot of people down through the ages that claimed to be a Messiah or a Christ. There were other people that the Jews claimed was a Christ, and the person never claimed it. And, and that's, that rep, history is replete with those facts and examples. But there was only one who came, not only claimed that he was Messiah, but claimed that he and the Father were one. He claimed to be God with us, God in the flesh. Not only that. But out of dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies, which were written hundreds of years before he came, some of them a thousand years before he came, he fulfilled every one of them, the only single solitary soul in all of history, seven billion people alive now, billions before that, one single solitary life fulfilled prophecies that were written hundreds of years before. He fulfilled them in the presence of tens of thousands of witnesses at times, then kept the promise of those prophecies and of his own mouth that he would deliver himself to the cruelest form of punishment and death that man has ever devised, deliver himself to a cross, and had the audacity to promise that he would fulfill the scriptures of Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 22 and uh, Zechariah 12, uh, that he would resurrect from the dead and that he would come back to life, and not just any old day, but three days later. Carl, let me, Carl, let me uh, just jump in here. We'll take a time out, we'll come back, and we'll talk about specifically some of those uh, prophecies that he fulfilled. And uh, we'll continue to delve into uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Carl Gallops is the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and The Magic Man in the Sky, effectively depending, defending the Christian faith. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Carl Gallops talking about uh, evidence, uh, both inside and outside the Bible, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let's talk specifically about some the fulfillment of some of those those prophecies. Yeah, well, as, as I was saying, and you know, I was just getting wound up answering your question. I'm sorry. I told you if, you, if I had three hours, I could do it justice. But, uh, but, but the bottom line is, yes, it's fulfilling these prophecies. And we come back and talk about these specific prophecies in just a moment. Uh, it, they're, they're amazing. But, but fulfilling these before the eyes of the ancient world, and then when he did come out of that grave alive. Listen, listen, Richard, like you said, we've got the, the, the documents of the New Testament tens of thousands of copies, written, most of them copied by hand over 2,000 years, disseminated throughout the world, scrutinized for 2,000 years. None of it, none of it has been disproven anywhere, anytime by anybody. As a matter of fact, that's why the Da Vinci Code and the tomb of Jesus being discovered and all those things came forth over the last several years. People have desperately tried to prove somehow that this thing was a hoax. But the problem is, Richard, like you said, we've got all of those New Testament documents, the most scrutinized documents in the world. We've got dozens of documents outside of the New Testament testifying of the Christ event, the historicity of the Christ event, undeniable. And then you've got the common sense thing of you got a guy who goes to a cross and claims he's going to rise from the dead. The last thing the Roman government wanted was for there to be a resurrection, so to speak, or, or a stealing of the body or a hoax. The last thing the Jewish Sanhedrin ruling council wanted was a, a, was a resurrection event or a, or a hoax or a stealing of the body. So what does history tell us that they did? 
they sealed the tomb and put a, Ro- a Roman cohort around it under penalty of death to guard it. And then during the early morning hours in the night, a massive earthquake hits the area. The stone is rolled back. The body is gone. And the disciples didn't steal it because when they went to the grave to find it, they were terrified that the body was gone, thought that they would be killed by the Roman authorities. They went and hid. So so now we have, of course, after that event, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Some of those people went to their death testifying that they saw and experienced the resurrected Christ. They were more certain that this Jesus Christ kept his promise and rose from the dead than they were of their own life. They delivered themselves unto death, and history records that in documents outside the Bible. So, you know, you, you go back to guys like C.S. Lewis, and then Josh McDowell in our day and time, these, these world-renowned atheists and professors of universities that mocked Christianity, who set out to disprove Christianity, to set out to prove that Christianity was a hoax, and particularly the resurrection. Because, see, they know, the atheistic, unbelieving world knows, Richard, that the entirety of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ hangs on the resurrection. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain, and we have believed in, in a lie unless he has been raised. And then in the next sentence he says, and Christ has been raised. But, but these atheists know this. Which So C.S. Lewis is famous because what did he do? He, being this academician, this intellectual, this historian, this researcher, this, this professor in, in England, he gathered up all the ancient documents he could find reading about this Christ event, And at the end of his investigation, he hit his knees, Richard, and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and became one of the greatest apologists, the greatest defenders of the Christian faith that the world has ever seen. Mere Christianity. Yeah, mere Christianity. Then Josh McDowell, who's still living and and is a friend of mine, and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. And Josh, I guess, would be in his late 60s now, maybe even early 70s. But but in his younger days, same thing. He was a professor, an atheist, mocked Christians, mocked Christianity, mocked the resurrection of Jesus Christ, set out to to destroy the Christian faith, and, and set out to prove once and for all, settle it, that the whole thing was a hoax and a myth gathered up all the historical documents he could find and research and, and, and immersed himself in, in the quest to destroy Christianity. And his words were similar to C.S. Lewis's, and I'm going to paraphrase them both. Both of them said something like this, I kept walling, running up against the insurmountable wall of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you hit that wall and consider that there's only one person in all of history that history holds up, in documents inside and outside the Bible. Even people who, in the day of Christ, were anti-Christian, yet they were still writing about the historicity of the Christ event. And he said, I kept running up against this evidence, and Josh McDowell said, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the fact that George Washington even lived. (laughs) That's true. How do you historically prove that George Washington was alive. You, yeah. I mean, how do you do that? That's it. That's that's what I'm saying. So you 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 have to you know you have to go by eyewitness accounts and by historical documents, and we have them, we have them. But there are tens of thousands of more pieces of scrutinized literature, 
and dozens of documents outside those 27 books that have been copied and delivered 10,000 times than, than there are any 10 pieces of classical literature, ancient classical literature combined. And we have that evidence to examine, to scrutinize, to submit to forensics, to submit to historical forensics. And these, these people who have done it, who have done an honest, diligent search, who set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ, kept running into the unarguable fact that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who claimed to be God with us, who worked miracles in the sight of 10,000 people. In fact, his detractors who wrote about it outside of the Bible, they speak of their hatred for this man, but they also speak of his miracles and say he had to have been some kind of sorcerer or something because his miracles were like that that the world had never seen. So, I mean, everything is there. It's there, even people that hate him. Even people that wrote in his time and hated him still spoke of the facts that are borne out in the New Testament documents. Uh, and, the, um, the, when, when the tomb was discovered uh, to be empty, uh, and I'm, I'm not, I can't remember which gospel account this is, but they talk about it was, it was um, um, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and um, I believe was it also um, Lazarus's sister, uh, wife, Lazarus's wife or sister, uh, you tell me though, who, who, the, the fact that the, the w- women went to yeah. the tomb, discovered it empty, went back to the apostles, yeah. and said he has risen. The fact that that is preserved in the Bible at a time when the word—let's face it—the word of a woman was didn't count for much back then. Oh, oh yeah, but, and, and here's why. Here's why. Because that's what happened, and here's why it happened. Because when his body was taken off that cross. He was not only dead, Richard, he was so dead with a spear shoved up his side, blood and, 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 and um, uh, you know, fluid, bodily fluid pouring out, suffering, watching him die. He was so dead that when he was taken to that grave, the disciples still, they didn't get it. I mean, they didn't understand, Richard, that he was going to literally rise. I guess it was since they had never seen that. They've never heard of that. The world had never seen it. Even all those years Jesus spoke of it, they probably thought he meant figuratively speaking or spiritually speaking or, or one day in the future his body would come out of the grave or something. But, but the disciples went home and hid Why? Because they had just seen the terrible death that their teacher, their master, had suffered. They knew the Jews hated them. They knew the Romans hated them. They knew a lot of the people by now hated them because of the persecution that was being brought upon them by the Jews and the Romans. They went and hid. Now, what were those women doing at the tomb? They were doing women's work. They were going to anoint the body because when they took the body off the cross and put it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a borrowed tomb, it was the Sabbath. It was Passover evening. They were forbidden, and the next day was a special Sabbath because it was Feast of First Fruits, or excuse me, it was unleavened bread. And then right after that would be Feast of First Fruits. So they had, and then, and then of course, there was the regular Sabbath, the Saturday that was to come. So they were forbidden from touching this dead body. They were forbidden from preserving it and putting the spices and the anointing oils on it until the first day of the week. So what did they do? They went early on the first day of the week. Why? 
because they knew the body would already be very close to a state of decay. It was going on the third day, and by the way, the third day was from there on is when the body started its decay process. So they went early, early, early to the tomb to get there as early as possible. They didn't go to see a resurrected Jesus. The disciples didn't go with them. They were hiding out. They knew that the authorities were looking for them. The authorities weren't looking for the women. They were looking for the men. The women were doing the women's work of the day. They were going to clean and anoint the body. They were going to go to the tomb and beg the soldiers to please let them anoint the body. But when they got there, the stone was rolled back. The soldiers were in disarray. They, they were fearing for their own lives. An earthquake had struck. The body was not there, and nobody could have stolen it. Everybody knew that, and people were freaking out. And, of course, the scriptures tell us, then an angel of the Lord appeared to the women and said, look, he's not here. He's risen, just like he said. And so they ran right back, told the disciples, and the scriptures are so honest, Richard. The scriptures say the disciples didn't believe them <laughs> you know, until Jesus himself appeared. They thought the women were out of their minds. And, you know, we're a little hard on the disciples at that point. But, again, put yourself in that place. Yes, they had heard Jesus say he was going to do it. It's easy for us on the other side of it to say, well, why didn't they believe? But if you were in that place, Richard, if I told you that I'm going to die tomorrow, but I'll, I'll rise three days from now, and, and I did die tomorrow, you probably wouldn't go to my grave. You'd probably say, well, I don't know if Carl can pull that off. He's, he just meant spiritually speaking. Exactly, right. Yeah, right. and that's what they thought. Well, the fact so, that what's significant to me is uh, is that they, the biblical account, the gospel preserved that version. You would yeah. think if they were perpetrating a hoax and they would right. want people to be on their side and believe them, they would change the story yes. so that it was the men, the yes. male disciples, who discovered the tomb empty. But they didn't. The fact that they left that account in, to me, speaks volumes. Yes, yes. And the fact that they had the men hiding away in a house afraid, because that's exactly what happened. I mean, the scriptures are so honest, and, and that's why I've said. I, and, and, you know, you, you so ni- brilliantly nailed it in the beginning of this, uh, this program tonight when you said, uh, you, you know, look, um, you've, you've got all of these, uh, you, you know, all of this scenario uh, laid out before us, and all of this history, if this did not happen, how in the world could it have been that nobody in the day and time in which it did happen would have written about it being a lie? I mean, why is it that nobody ever says from that day and time? You'd think there would be dozens of documents, Richard. You'd think there would be scores of documents. You'd think there'd be hundreds of documents saying, well, we know what these, these Jews, these Christians, these Christ believers are saying, but it's a hoax. It's a lie. We were there. Uh, the, the body w- wasn't gone. It was there. You, you know, but there are none. There are none. Right. Instead, we have the 27 documents of the New Testament and dozens of documents outside of the Bible attesting to the historicity of this whole event. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, discuss further evidence for the resurrection. We'll take a look at uh, uh, evidence outside the Bible, Josephus and uh, Tacitus and others. Carl Gallops, the uh, author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and The Magic Man in the Sky, effectively defending the Christian faith. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 
416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Carl Gallops discussing evidence for uh, the resurrection uh, here on our Easter special. The other thing, it, it's kind of an interesting um, idea, you know, maybe an experiment someone could try. Try starting a rumor or floating a, a legend, creating your own legend, and see how long it lasts. Just make something up, anything, and see, you know, put it out there. Yeah. See how far it goes. Even put it online. You'll reach, you know, millions of people instantaneously. Right. How long will that lie, that legend, that myth actually survive? And well, yet Richard, we have no, this. Sorry, go, no, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I thought you were finished. Go ahead. Yet we, you have this. Well, uh, the, the point is it, it's very difficult to sustain. Yeah. Yeah, well, yes, again, brilliantly stated, and let me take it one step further. So let me take your uh, proposition, and let, let me just turn it into a quick little story and take it a step further. So let's say that you and I, of course, we are good friends, so we don't have to make believe that, but let's say that we're going to secretly uh, start a religion uh, in, in which um, – you know, in which I would be exalted as some kind of Messiah, you would be my right-hand man. So what we do is we plan this whole elaborate hoax, and it's going to involve a fake resurrection on my part. And we get, other, you know, a handful of other people involved, and we convince them all they're going to be wealthy and rich and famous, and, and you know, we're going to rule the world and if they'll just keep their mouths shut and make this happen. So let's say we go through a process and we figure out all kinds of ways to, to, to pull off a fake resurrection and, and, and you know, and it takes a lot of luck uh, as well as a lot of skill, but uh, all of the skill is put into place and, and luckily, coincidentally, uh, the circumstances just happen to fall in place and people are where they're supposed to be and people that don't need to be seeing are not there, et cetera, et cetera, and we pull it off. And the next thing you know, I've presented myself alive, and you're right there. You're the Peter of the group saying, yep, I was there. I saw it. This is him. And now, you know, Carl is the new Messiah, and, and, and the double handful of people we brought in on the scam, they're with us. Okay, everything's rocking along just fine until one night, Richard, you're on your way home. You're with your wife and your precious children, and you're in your car, and three big old cars run you off the side of the road, and people pile out with shotguns, and they stick it to the heads of your children and your wife. And they say, now, you tell us right now, is this a hoax or not? If you don't tell us, we're fixing to kill your, your, your family right in front of your face. Well, you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, it's a lie. Carl's a liar. It's a scam. Please let my family live. Right? Sure, absolutely. Sure. You would not die for a scam without hesitation without i don't care how much you like me i don't care how rich and famous we were you would not let your family die for a scam not in well well now why did i tell that story well you know why richard because every one of the disciples were faced with similar situations every one of them and history bears out over time many hundreds and many thousands more went to their deaths and their families and their children went to their deaths under christian persecution proclaiming Jesus was resurrected from the grave. We saw the resurrected Savior. And those that didn't, the generation after said, my mom and daddy saw the resurrected Savior. We know that Jesus is alive. And they went to their deaths, Richard. And none of them ever became rich or famous or anything. It wasn't about that. It was about the fact that they were unbelievers themselves. The early disciples hid. The women were on their way to anoint a dead body. 
But once they met the resurrected Christ, they then understood what he had come to do. They knew he was the Lord. They knew he was God with us. They knew the resurrection was the truth, and they gave their lives for it, Richard. And there's a huge piece of the evidence the historical evidence of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not all that we have, but it's a huge piece. Well, let's talk about the... let's talk about historical evidence outside the Bible, and and let's talk about Josephus, the Jewish historian who, who was yeah. writing for the Roman government in in well, I guess it was about a generation after Christ's death, right around seventy A.D. Yeah, no, no, that's right. No, he, uh, yeah, I think he wrote in the early one hundreds. I think. But yes, uh, it was after, uh, about a generation after, correct. And, and what did he write about, uh, about uh, Christ and the church? Well, you know, he didn't fill up volumes about Christ and the church, but he did mention Jesus Christ and mentioned his, uh, the reports of his crucifixion, mentioned the reports, I believe, I mean, there's dozens of documents, I believe he mentioned the reports of his uh, resurrection. Uh, but, but basically the thing that's so good about Josephus is that he was a Jew. He was not a Christian. Uh, he was a historian. In fact, he was a Pharisee at the age of, as a teenager, at the age of 19, he was a Pharisee. And then in, in, by 66 A.D., he was a, a commander of the Jewish forces in Galilee. Uh, so, so he was a Pharisee. Uh, part of that group that would have hated this, this Christ man, this Jesus. But yet, when he wrote his history... When he wrote his history of the Jews, um, he included uh, accounts of this Jesus called the Christ and his miracles and what the people did and what they said and and that Pilate condemned him to be crucified and and that uh, his disciples uh, reported that he had risen from the dead and uh, three days later I mean all of this is re- is recorded in Josephus. Uh, historical account. Okay, we've got to take another time out when we come back. There are those, of course, who, who say that those references to Christ have were, were, were added in later. Um, we can maybe discuss that, and we can also discuss some other um, uh, pieces of evidence that exist outside the Bible uh, for the resurrection. Back with more of my conversation with Pastor Carl Gallops, the author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and the Magic Man in the Sky, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, historical evidence uh, for that event with Carl Gallops. Now, uh, the references to Josephus, uh, it has been uh, said that uh, those those references to Christ were added in later by Christian apologists. Um, what, 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 What do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, I don't really, I, I, I don't really know a lot about that, Richard. Um, and, and it wouldn't surprise me that those kinds of claims are made. I don't know how one would go about uh, proving that. Um, but the fact is, the evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Josephus is just one. 
of, of many pieces of that evidence. So, so our, uh, you know, the entirety of our faith does not rely upon what Josephus might have said or didn't say, but you and I were just talking about him as being one right. source uh, because he did write. Uh, I mean, it is in his writings about the Christ. But, but, it, but again, so, so it is in the writings of Tacitus and uh, uh, Lucian of, uh, of Samoseta. Um, uh, let me see, Josephus. Let me see if I can remember from seminary <laughs> in all my studies. Uh, Suetonius and Tertullian. Uh, good gracious, uh, there's there's several dozen, and not, not only that, but some of the writings of uh, what we would now call the early church fathers, but you've got to remember, these guys didn't know they were church fathers any more than George Washington knew that he was the father of our nation. He, he, was, just, he was just fighting for freedom and independence. But, but, but these guys, Polycarp and uh, uh, Eusebius and uh, uh, Irenaeus and Ignatius and Justin and Origen and all of these guys, what did they do? They spent their lives researching and going through the historical documents of their day that were so close to the original times of, of, of those lives, even, even just a, maybe a century or two after, but considering we're 2,000 years the other side, I mean, these guys were so close to the actual event, and they wrote volumes, voluminous material upon the life and the history and the evidence, and they, they footnoted and, and referenced and resor- uh, their resources, and so we've got all of that as well. So we've got these you know, 27 books that have been copied and recopied by hand, but 10,000 or more, 20,000, I think, pieces of documents we have or whole documents that have been scrutinized and all of the voluminous writing of these early church historians that wanted to make sure that what they were teaching and preaching was historically verifiable, and then these historians that we just named, Tacitus and Josephus and others, um, uh, that, that wrote about things going on in that period of time, and, and then would mention, you know, Pontius Pilate and Jesus and a crucifixion and the Jews that were following him and a resurrection account. And again, it's these kinds of documents, these kinds of historical uh, uh, verification that caused these great atheists, <laughs> C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and a bevy of others, to fall on their knees after running slap into this wall of evidence and say, you know what? There was a man who rose from the dead, who claimed to be God, who went to a cross, claimed to be going for our sins. And then we look at the Old Testament prophecies, and boom, 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 he fulfilled them. Only one person. And they said, this has got to be the Messiah. This uh, has got to be him. Let's circle back and discuss some of the prophecies, because I, I, uh, I failed to do that earlier. And that is, uh, again, here's the, the claim by the, uh, the, the debunkers, that uh, Jesus would have had access to some of these the scrolls from what later <laughs> became the Old Testament, and he could have set out to... Decided to fulfill those prophecies. Yeah. yeah how do yeah. you how do you uh, respond to that? Yeah. Well, well, absolutely. Let me be as honest as I can. Uh, self-fulfilling prophecies on some of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Self-fulfilling. Could he have started his ministry in Galilee, as Isaiah said? Absolutely. Could he have come bringing a message of peace and 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 love of God, uh, as Isaiah said, and and some of the other prophets? Absolutely. I mean, you can go through some of the self-fulfilling prophecies, um, but. But there were also prophecies that said that he would be born in Bethlehem, but yet he would come out of Egypt, yet he would come out of Nazareth. Well, I don't know, and yet he would begin his ministry in Galilee. Don't know how you would self-fulfill exactly where you were born, and that your daddy did take you to Egypt, and you did come out of Egypt, and you did, you were raised in Nazareth, and you did begin your ministry out of Galilee. 
that would be hard to self-fulfill. But even if you could pull that off, even if those coincidences just lined up in your life and you saw them in the Scripture and said, hey, I'm going to claim I'm this dude, then you've got the prophecies of that he would open the eyes of the blind. He would cause the deaf to hear. He would uh, raise the dead. He would heal the sick. Well, not only did he do that, but he did it in the presence of so many witnesses that it was irrefutable that he did those things. So the people who wrote about it in his day, who despised him and that movement, claimed that he was some kind of sorcerer. As a matter of fact, when you go internal the New Testament documents, you run into the same claims from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who said, he's got a demon in him. He's a witch. He's a sorcerer. So they never disputed that he did these things. They just couldn't figure out how, because nobody had ever done them. Yet, the prophecy said that the Christ would do that. Then, self-fulfill a crucifixion? Brother, you'd have to be out of your ever-loving mind to say... I so want to be recognized as the Messiah, I will give myself to a Roman crucifixion. Yet, in Psalm 22, David, who wrote it, looked down 1,000 years into the future under the spirit of prophecy. And you know what he says in Psalm 22? He speaks of the Christ, and he says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They circle around me, and they say, Let him deliver himself. He saved others. Let him save himself. They gamble for my clothing under my feet. My bones are out of joint. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I mean, how do you self-fulfill that? And why would you self-fulfill? Who in the world would submit themselves to a Roman crucifixion for five minutes of fame? Who would do that? And, and then you've got the prophecies of the resurrection. And then, of course, everything we've been talking about. How do you pull that off? How do you self-fulfill that? So, so the argument of self-fulfilled prophecy only holds up for just a handful of things. But you've got to deal with a dozen supernatural events that were prophesied that were pulled off in the singular person of Jesus Christ. Uh, you and I have never talked about the Shroud of Turin. I, I, I've done many shows. I, I think it's one of the most fascinating relics um, the world has ever known. But I, I've never talked to you about it. What's your take on the Shroud of Turin? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, I, I try to be as honest as I can. For many years, I didn't give it much credence, but and, and because I just hadn't done a whole lot of in-depth study on it. It really wasn't on my radar screen. It was interesting. I would see a few shows on TV about it or read some articles. But here, a couple of years ago, I really immersed myself into some studies and some scientific analysis and scientific studies and uh I, I'm going to tell you, um, I'm convinced there may be a little something to it, Richard. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, and, and I'm not an expert. I'm sure you know much more about it than I do, but you asked for my opinion, and, and I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's appearing that there, uh, there, there's something, either something extremely supernatural about that, or there was an advanced science that we know nothing about that enabled them to duplicate uh, all that's within that shroud. Right. And for those listening that may be not familiar with the Shroud of Turin, this is purported to be the burial cloth, uh, yes. the, the, the shroud that, that was wrapped around Jesus at the time of his death, and the image on the shroud, which is interesting because uh, it was photographed in the late 19th century by a photographer by the name of Pia Seconda. It, he was, when he took a photograph of it, his his it was a a positive image on yeah. his film, which means that the image on the shroud is a negative image. Right. That's that contains 
three-dimensional information. It's a 3D negative. I mean, how they would have been able to 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 uh, to, to to pull off that hoax in the mid- mid- Middle Ages yeah. uh, is beyond me. But here's another interesting thing about the shroud, about the, the the prophecies being fulfilled after death. Is there not something in Psalms also about that during the crucifixion his legs would not be broken, which was the which was the way that the Roman soldiers would quickly dispatch a, a, crucif- a crucifixion victim. Yes, and I do not remember the exact reference, but there is an Old Testament reference to the fact that not a single bone would be broken. Absolutely, there is. An, in fact, I was reading it just the other day, and I cannot remember where it is right now, and I, I'm not sitting in front of a computer or my Bible to, to or a concordance to research it, but you are correct. There is an Old Testament reference to that. I mean, this is what I'm saying. There are dozens of prophecies like that. How could he self-fulfill that? For example, and uh, what's interesting, and the reason the soldiers would, would the Roman centurions would break the legs of a, a, a crucified victim is to hasten yes. their death because they couldn't yes. hold themselves up, but with their legs anymore. That's so right. they would essentially sort of suffocate. That's exactly right. And, and since it was the night of the Passover, the Romans trying to keep peace among the Jews were not going to have a bunch of dead bodies hanging up on a, the highest ho- or one of the highest holy Sabbaths of uh, of the Jews. So they had to get them down. And so the two thieves apparently were still alive, as many victims would be, because they, that was such an agonizing, slow, sometimes, you know, days people would just linger upon the crosses in, in agony. Uh, and so they would, uh, they would break the legs with a mallet, and then that, that uh, in, uh, kept them from being able to push up on that, 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 those spikes in the feet uh, to get a breath of air, because... You know, the body would give out, they would hang from their arms, and their lungs would collapse. They couldn't breathe, so they would push up and get a breath of air and then go back down. They would do that for hours, trying to stay alive, trying to cling to life, to keep from suffocating in their own, you know, bodily fluids. What a miserable way to die. Yes. And so, and so because, because they lingered, then what they would do is they would break their legs with a mallet, and they would literally drown in their own body fluids. And, but they didn't have to do that with, with Jesus because he was already gone, and they stuck a spear in his side just to make sure. Right, and the and the the blood, and it is blood. They know it's blood on the shroud. That that uh, injury and the blood that came forth was a combination of serum yes. and or water and red blood uh, cells, meaning it was post mortem bleeding. Right, and again, the legs were not broken. The image on the yes. shroud, the legs are intact, which supports the biblical uh, narrative. Yes, uh, and the prophecy fulfills yes. the prophecy. And, and as a matter of fact, Richard, let let, let me share one other piece of information that's that's uh, hugely important. I, I've, I've said it several times tonight that the, the Bible mentions that after three days he would rise from the grave. And, and people say, well, now where does it say that in the Old Testament? Of course, Jesus said in the New Testament that that's what he would do. In fact, he used the, 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 the example of, of Jonah. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And, but then would you know, be resurrected, and that would be a sign to the Jews that he was the Christ. But people say, well, you know, Carl, you, you said that the Old Testament talks about him rising after three days. I, I can't find that anywhere. Well, if you know what you're looking for, you can find it, and it's as plain as the nose on your face. And it's in Psalm 16, where the psalmist David says he's, he's rejoicing that God is his Savior, and he says, and you will not allow me... To rem- and I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm going to get to. I'm going to give a specific quote in a minute. He says, "And you will not abandon me to the grave." In other words, death is not the final answer because I belong to you. you he was David was convinced that God was going to give him eternal life. He says, "You will not abandon me to the grave." 
watch this. The next verse says, nor will you let your, and, and it depends on which translation, uh, your holy one or your anointed one see decay. Now that's interesting because if you were to write that in, in Greek, the word anointed in Greek is Christo. So it would literally read, nor will you let your Christ see decay. Amazing. Carl, i got to leave it there. We are out of time. But uh, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, again, remind listeners, the rabbi who found Messiah, the story of Yitzhak Kaduri, and of course, the magic man in the sky, effectively defending the Christian faith. Always a pleasure, Carl. It's my honor, Richard. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tim Spreen, for production. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be with us. Bye for now. Thank you.